amazing how much passion around football. Just passion, passion. And so I hope uh, if you're wanting to watch the game, uh, many of our small groups are watching the game. I will say our small group has the biggest TV. So if you want to come and watch with us, you're welcome to come. So passion. We're talking about passion, all sorts of passion for the Super Bowl. But here's a question. Are we passionately praying for the perishing? Are we passionately praying? Are we as passionate about praying for the lost as we are about so many other things in our life? If you look at your notes at the top of the page, it says this question. When it comes to passionately praying for the perishing, is my problem praying or passion or both? Is my problem praying or passion or both? And so you write those in, but I want you to circle one, circle one. Think about that. When it comes to passionately praying for the perishing, is my problem praying for the loss, passion for the loss, or is it both passionately praying for the loss? Let's just, by way of introduction, look at a couple things. Because last week we talked about praying. This week we're going to talk about passion. But what are some of the problems we encounter praying for the perishing, praying for lost people? And and as I thought through this, uh, there's at least four. There may be more, but I thought about this. Number one, struggling with not praying at all. Struggling with not praying hard. Kind of hard to pray for the loss when you're not praying at all. Would you agree? Or your praying is hit or miss. If our praying is hit or miss, then we're really not praying for lost people more than likely. But James 4.2 says this. You do not have because you do not ask. Do not have. If... If we want to see our lost friends and neighbors come to Christ and they're not coming to Christ, well, then maybe we need to listen to James and realize we haven't been praying. You do not have because you do not ask. Number two, some of us may be praying, but we're struggling with just praying for our own interests, struggling with praying for our own interests more than lost people getting saved. Because you know what James says right after he says you have not because you do not ask? He says this in James 4, 3. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. He says, first, our problem is we're not praying. That's why we don't see answers. That's why we don't see more lost people being saved through our influence, through the influence even of our church or or the ministries you're in. But then he says, you may be praying. The problem is, what do we tend to pray about? What, What is the very first thing that we always pray about is us, right? Us. And then we might expand that circle to our what? Family. And then our friends. And then we might expand it to our church. And by that time, you're like, you mean we ought to be praying more? You know, I mean, if I if I just got to that point, I would feel like I had a master uh, prayer life. But no, we need to get our focus off ourselves, off our own problems and realize if we're born again, if we're born again, whatever problems we're praying about that are our problems are nothing compared to the lost who are heading towards eternal destruction. But there might be a third struggle that we have, and it's this. Struggling with not praying for the lost because of an overemphasis on God's sovereignty. Not praying for the lost because of an overemphasis on God's sovereignty or a misunderstanding of it or a, a fear of it in the sense of why pray if God already knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. Now, last week we dealt with that. Last week we dealt with that, and if you're... If you weren't here for that or you need to refresh on that, then go to glenwoodconnection.org and and go to resources. And under there, you can go to sermons. And under there, you can look for this series and you can find last week's lesson. But there's a fourth struggle. Struggling with not praying for the lost because of an overemphasis on human responsibility. You see, we all sometimes we, we can think, that an overemphasis or God's sovereignty is always the, the, the thing that squelches prayer. But I would like to put forth to you today that not only can an overemphasis and a wrong understanding of sovereignty lead to passivity, but I would put forth to you 
that an overemphasis on human responsibility leads to all sorts of quirky and wrong behavior, including and lack of prayer. Why do I say that? I, I, I do believe many people struggle with the question of prayers and God's sovereignty, but I also think that at the root of much of our prayerlessness and struggle with prayer is a fundamental confidence in our own ability versus God's ability. In other words, we don't pray because we don't think we need Him. And the reason we think we don't need Him is because we think our ability, our smarts, our, you know, our approach is enough to get things done. Now, nod with me like you, you can relate to that. You see what I'm saying? If it, listen, if evangelism all depends on me and it all depends on the response of the other person, well, then I'm, I'm not going to mess with praying. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work on convincing that person. I'm going to get better technique. I'm going to get more persuasive. I'm going to get more aggressive, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to, and, and you know what you do? You start crossing the line into manipulation. Why? Because it all depends on me, and it all depends on getting the right answers from them, and if I don't get the right answers from them, then there must be something wrong with me, and I don't want anything to be wrong with me, so I've got to get the right answer from them. And if it all depends on me, some of us have a different personality, and we go, if it all depends on me, then I don't even want to go there. Because what would happen if I said the wrong thing? They may go to hell because I said the wrong thing. What They may reject. They may, you know, and you guys are laughing because you, that's you. You know, you know, that's you. And that comes from an overemphasis on what? Human ability. Uh, overemphasis. So, and I thought about it. Remember, remember this. It doesn't matter which side of the tightrope. Remember, we've been talking about the tightrope of the text. It doesn't matter which side you fall off on. You fall off on sovereignty, you're messed up and dead, like Carl Walenda. If you mess up on human responsibility, you're, you're, you're equally dead. See, there, there's no comfort in going to the extremes. The comfort is to stay with the text and stay with God's truth. In other words, an overemphasis on human responsibility can lead us to be too aggressive and even manipulative in our efforts. It can lead us to passivity, overthinking evangelism, Paralysis by analysis. Oh, I got to do it right. So fearful of saying or doing the wrong thing that we do nothing. And it can lead to too much confidence, overconfidence in our reaching lost people thinking, I've got the verbal skills. I've got the intellectual arguments. I've got the relational connection. I can just schmooze them to Jesus. Well, what that all leads to is a lack of what? Prayer. Prayer. So there's the struggles with prayer. But as real as those problems are, I really think the greatest problem in praying for the perishing is a lack of passion, a lack of passion. So let's look in your notes. It says problems with passionately praying for the perishing. And I see two things. Number one, and both of these are in Romans 9 and Romans 10. Romans, uh, number one, a lack of praying for the loss is a lack of heart passion. A lack of praying for the loss is a, a lack of heart passion. And you know why I say that? We naturally pray about what we are most passionate about. Would you agree? Right now, if I said, just bow your heads, and for one minute, I just want you to pray. The first thing that comes to your mind. You know what the first thing is going to come to your mind? Whatever you're passionate about. Did you, did you see the news? Tom Brady's wife. And her tweets, I mean, this is how important America culture is, that we're talking about a woman's tweets, okay? I mean, that just even sounds wrong saying it, okay? But she sends the Twitter out, the tweet, the Twitter, and what does she, pray, what does she ask for? Pray for Tommy this Sunday. Pray for Tommy. That, you know, he's under so much pressure. And then Jay Leno says, you know, he makes a joke about it. Why? Because he says, yeah, did you hear about the guy that was in an accident? He's praying to God, and God said, hey, I got other, you know, I'm, I'm busy with Brady in the Super Bowl. See, even lost people understand that to have that much passion and to pray about that kind of thing is out of the priorities of even God. You know, even lost people understand a lack of passion. But look at what Romans 10.1, look at Romans 10.1. Listen to the passion of the Apostle Paul. Listen to the, the passion. Brothers, my heart's desire. 
This is what in my heart of hearts, this is what I'm burdened for. This is what I'm passionate about. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the hardened, rejecting Israelites, is that they may be saved. And please look that passion is proven in prayer. My heart's desire and it's connected and prayer. Why? Because we naturally pray about what we are passionate about. If you and I are struggling with praying passionately for lost pe- or praying for lost people, it's because we have a lack of passion. Number two, a lack of praying for the lost is a lack of heart pain. It's a lack of heart pain. Why? We naturally pray about that which is hurting our heart. Again, if I told you to pause right now, bow your heads and pray. One of the first things, you're either going to pray about two things, whatever you're most passionate about or whatever's hurting you right now. Would you agree? It's whatever is burdening your heart. And here's what I'm saying. Those passions and those burdens are not wrong necessarily. What I'm saying is that in that passion and in that pain, there ought to be hurt that lost people are going to hell. Can I get an amen? And so that's where I think we are. So we need to ask a practical question, and that's what this lesson is designed to do. We need to ask, how can we cultivate a heart like Paul's heart? Are there any steps that we can take to get the point of, to where we can say what Paul says in Romans 10.1? My heart's desire for the lost is that they may be saved. Well, let me give you four practical steps this morning. Four practical steps for a passion like Paul's. And let me, you can write them in there. Here's number one, renew, renew. Renew your mind with biblical truth. Number two, request. Renewing your mind should lead to requesting from God, something very specific. Third, respond. Renew, request, respond. And number four is rejoice. Rejoice. Whatever else we do, we ought to rejoice in what we do. Now, let me take you through those and. and just just hit what they are. And, and they're, they're really basic. It's really basic. This is something that you do more than you, you are taught it. It's something that's caught more than taught. Number one, renew. Meditate on these truths in your prayer time. Meditate on these truths on your knees. Here's the thing. Passion, one of the ways, not the only way, may not even be the most direct way for you, but one of the ways that we stir and establish passion is we, not, we, get, we have to learn about that which we're supposed to be passionate about. We need to renew our minds with biblical truths. I'm going to give you seven of these, and we're going to move those. I'm not going to teach them to you. I'm just going to give them to you. Here's what you need to do is get alone with God, look up these verses, and pray them back to God. And as you pray them, God will create a passion in your heart. And what's ironic about these seven truths that I'm going to give to you is Paul has basically taught these seven truths in Romans 9 through uh, or 1 through 11 or 1 through 9. Let me just put it that way. He's taught these truths in the first nine chapters. That's why he can say in chapter 10, here's my heart's desire. And, and, and literally, as I take you through these, we could trace them right from Romans 1, 2, 3, right to Romans 9. So let's look at it. Number one, renew your mind with the reality of eternal wrath. Renew your mind with the reality of eternal wrath. In other words, one of the reasons we lack passion for lost people is we do not believe in our heart of hearts that those who never hear and those who hear and reject will go to hell for all eternity and suffer the wrath of God. We believe it may be in our heads, but it hasn't penetrated our hearts. Never forget that people that do not obey Christ forfeit eternal life. They face eternal death and they live daily under the wrath of God. Listen to John three thirty six. Here's Jesus speaking. He who believes in the Son 
has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. And what's amazing about that last part is wrath is already on the unbeliever. The, you know, the unbeliever, people are not neutral. People are not walking around neutral. People without Christ, the wrath of God is upon them, whether they realize it or not. All that happens when they die is they cannot ever reverse that situation. Listen to Romans 1.18. Remember, all of Romans 1-3 through 3 establishes this truth. The reality of the eternal wrath. And here's what Romans 1.18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is revealed. That's present tense. It, the wrath of God is a reality. Paul did not shy away from thinking through the consequences of never hearing the gospel and receiving Jesus Christ. Paul did not believe that love wins in the end and that everyone would eventually be saved like some pro- present-day popular pastors do. In Romans 9.1, he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to flesh. He so much believed that those who reject Christ were going to hell that he wished if he could, I could be sent there in their place. That's passion. That's reality. See, Paul didn't wish hell away. He wished he could go there to save others from going there. See, what we want to do in our current culture and many Christians, even professing Christians, say this. They want to wish hell away. Paul said, I don't wish hell away. It's too much of a reality. I wish I could go there if I could to just save my people. Well, here's the reality. Jesus has already done that. Jesus went through hell. Jesus took the curse of God. He rose from the dead. We just need to get the message out there. We need to be passionate about it. Well... There's more that I could say there. There's more verses there. You ought to just, listen, get on your knees and read Revelation 20, 11 through 15. As God the judge throws those whose names are not written in the book of life into the eternal lake of fire with the devil, with the false prophet, with the Antichrist. It's a reality. Ask yourself this question. If I knew that a deadly plague was coming and I knew that my coworker had not received his or her vaccine to protect themselves, would I not ask them why they had refused? Would I not ask them why they don't want to take it? Would I not seek to persuade him or her to choose life because they are infected and dying without the vaccine? Ask yourself, what would you say at the judgment day if, um, if your unbelieving friend turns to you and asks you, why didn't you speak to me with more seriousness? Why didn't you speak to me with more urgency? Why didn't you risk our friendship to tell me that I wouldn't have to spend eternity here? In other words, keep before your mind the terrible reality of entering eternity without Christ. Now, I have... A couple of things. I think we just haven't studied and think about hell enough. There's a book there that I have. I have several books, but one, Heaven and Hell. Heaven and Hell by Edward Donnelly. It's not thick. It's thin. It talks about hell. It talks about heaven. It's easy to understand. It's not one of my, my theological bricks. It's a little book. I've read it. I recommend it. There's several other there. Also, many of you benefited from the series One Minute After You Die series of Jesus is the only way. Again, go back to our website, look up those series, listen to those things, the reality of hell. That's number one. Number two, the sufficiency of Christ's cross. This would be Romans 4 through 5. Meditate often on the sufficiency of Christ's cross to cover the sins of absolutely anyone who repents and believes in him. I like this quote from John Piper, glory in the work of the cross for yourself and you will begin to glory in it for others. In other words, make much of the fact that Christ died and his death was sufficient to cover all of my awfulness 
And if he can cover my awfulness, then he can cover whoever is lost that I am supposed to witness. See, I just think a lot of times we think people are too sinful in a sense for God to save them. We think they're too hard and too sinful. And yet realize this, whatever lost people are doing, you know, that you know, Christ has paid for that. Christ's death on the cross is sufficient. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, speaking of Christ. He is the propitiation. That's just a word that means satisfaction, satisfying God's wrath. He is the satisfaction for God's wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen to this in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, where Paul talks about and commands the church, passionately pray for the lost. And he says this, it's good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ's sufficient. Second Peter 3, 9, God is long-suffering, not desiring that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Think of Paul's own testimony in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. Here's what he says. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And then he says this, and I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy. But here's why I did, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know what that's saying? God saved the worst first. God saved the worst sinner first so that all sinners could take hope and say, if he saved Saul, then he can save me. Isn't that good? He is. He was a murderer of Christians. Wow. Awesome stuff. That leads to number three. Renew your mind with the expectancy of the Spirit's word, the Spirit's and the word's saving power. This is Romans 6 through 8. Paul teaches this all through Romans 6 through 8. The expectancy of the Spirit's and word's saving power. In other words, when you expect God to save, then you get a passionate about seeing people say the problem again with us is we don't expect god to save we think people are so hardened and unbelieving well that's going to squelch my passion but if i expect god to move listen to this romans 1 16 here's what paul said for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek is it any wonder he prayed for the Jews' salvation? Because he believed that the gospel was the power of God. Listen to Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I've said this so many times, but I will keep saying it. We hold back from sharing God's word with lost people for fear that they will reject. When we should be sharing it, knowing that it's... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, if I withhold the word of God, I'm withholding the power of the gospel. They have to hear it to have faith to believe it. We think wrong. Can I hear some? Uh Uh-huh. We think wrong. We, We overthink it. The power's not in you. It's in getting the word out. Yes, they'll reject. Yes, some will mock. But there will be those whom God has chosen and has prepared and whom God is drawing through his spirit. See, the problem is you don't know what's going on in the hearts of unsaved people and neither do I. If you had seen me at 17, well, first of all, you wouldn't have recognized. But if you had seen me, you would never have thought that there was a young man who was depressed, desperate, 
and losing all hope. Who was searching, wanting to know God, wanting to understand love, wanting to be accepted and loved and find his place in the world. But you would have seen someone who was at the top of his class, who had a circle of friends, who was popular and well-liked as a, as a nerd, you know, as much as a, 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 brainy, a brainiac could be. But you would never have thought, that's someone that God has prepared. And the Spirit is working. And all he needs is the invite, the word to be presented. You would never have thought that unless you had a passion. Thank God a librarian in that public school had that passion and said, so you go to church. Do you read your Bible? Well, no, no one ever asked me. Well, why don't you read it? Dummy. She didn't say that, but she might as well. Okay, that's all I needed. Off we went. The expectancy of the Spirit. Listen, God gave His Spirit to convict sinners of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Listen, preach to yourself that these are the days of the new covenant where the Spirit of God takes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart yielded to God and His Word. These are the days of the new covenant where God is moving to change hearts. And we've got to believe what we read in this book. Read it. When John Wesley arrived in Newcastle upon the Tyne, that's a town in England, in May of 1742, he wrote these memorable words. I was, he, he journaled on horseback. I was surprised, so much drunkenness, cursing, swearing, even from the mouths of little children. I never remember having seen or heard before in so small a compass of time. Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, I love that. Wesley sees sin and says, what an opportunity I'm diving in. We see hardened sinners and we go, you know, and I'm the same way. I'm just as guilty of that. Number four, the opportunity of celebrating conversion the opportunity of celebrating conversion. Paul talks about this in Romans 10 where he says, beautiful, beautiful are the feet of those who share good news. In other words, they come at just the right time. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. I think I have in your notes. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents. All of heaven takes notice and there's a party throne. I call this party theology. There's a whole party theology. Remember the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son? At the end of every one of those, when something lost is found, when something that was dead comes alive, you throw a party. And listen, if you want to grow your passion, then anticipate the joy. Anticipate the joy. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had such a privilege. And I, I, don't, I don't want to embarrass you, Nikki, but I'm sorry. Party theology demands it. To lead this young lady to the Lord, to watch God open her eyes and go, I've never heard this before. I never knew I didn't have to earn it. I, I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm unworthy. I didn't figure out how to be accepted. You don't think I got excited? Did I get excited? Sure, we get excited. And, if I, do I, and every time I see her and I'm in a group, we talk about it, don't we, Nikki? Why? I'm sorry, Nikki. It's party theology. We must celebrate. We have to celebrate. And when you have a party like that, what do you want to do? You look forward to the, the next one. Number five. The generosity of God's grace. The generosity of God's grace. Listen, freely have you received. Freely should we give. Listen, if God is so free and gracious and loving to save the likes of us, why would we restrain ourselves? 
Why would not we just be abundant in that? This is Romans 11. Where we're eventually going to get in this series is in Romans 11. He just says, look, look, you Jews, you Gentiles, you're bickering with one another. All of you are undeserving. And I have made it so, so that I may show mercy to you all. All of it's free. It's all, it's all free. Remember in Luke 7, 47, Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, little loves little. Jesus also said, freely you have received, freely you ought to give. Think of these verses. Think of them on your knees. Number six, the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is Romans 9. The sovereignty of God. I won't spend our time here. We've talked about that. We've talked about it. All I'm saying is this. Paul, God says, God himself says to Paul in Acts 18.9. Here's what he says. Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And what he means by that is people who are sinners and not yet saved. But in my sovereignty, I'm going to save them. But in my sovereignty, I'm going to use your witness, your preaching. So you got to get out there. You got to open your mouth. Quit being scared. And Paul stayed a year and six months. And immediately in, in Acts 18, he has a witnessing opportunity. Wow. More, so much. Number seven, the certainty of God's love. The certainty of God's love. We began with the reality of his wrath. We end with the certainty of his love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 1 Thess 1, 4, for we know brothers, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, belief in the truth. One practical step to renew your passion is renew your mind with these passages on your knees. Pray them back to God. And as you do, God will build a passion in you. Second, request, request, plead with the Lord for a heart like this, like his. Here's the here's the fact. What we're talking about here is a change of heart. And here's the fact. It doesn't happen apart from prayer because it's a divine work. So look at what it says in your notes. Lord, change my heart and increase my love for the lost. Amen. I dare you. I challenge you. Pray that every day, every day. For the next 60 days, 90 days, pray that every day. Lord, change my heart and increase my love for the lost. If you will just do that for 60 days, you'll have a greater passion. You'll have a greater passion. Pray for one another. Pray with one another. Number three, respond. Respond. Listen, if you're going to renew your mind, if you renew your mind, if you begin requesting, it leads to responding. And here's what you do. Get involved in loving the lost, sharing the gospel. Plead with the Lord for a heart like his, and then get involved in loving the lost and sharing the gospel. And let me just give you two things. Number one, spend time. Spend time being with lost people and seeing their needs. You're like, Chris, are you crazy? This is the problem with you preachers. You're so isolated. You don't understand that I'm with lost people every day. I know. But look at, I used wording. I said, be with them. You're with them, but are you being with them? Meaning, being with them to see their need. Once I began to ask God to do this for me, once I began getting involved, I've told you this last couple of weeks, 
when I sit at Panera and I'm by myself after meeting with Jeremy or whoever I'm meeting with, and I look at people, I'm starting to look and I see lost people. See, I'm not just at Panera with lost people. I'm, 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 I'm being with them. I'm thinking of them. I'm beginning to pray for them. I'm getting a burden for them. I'm thinking, well, I don't know them, and I, and I, I don't feel you're prompting yet to stand up and preach to them. But who can I? Have I talked to Milton next door lately? What, what am I doing? There's lost people everywhere. Spend time with them. See their need. And then number two, act on your increasing passion. That's the best thing you can do. Just start acting. I'm telling you, until the, most of us lack passion because we simply haven't shared the gospel in years. We haven't shared the gospel in years. And you know what? What we're so fearful of will build a passion. We're feel fearful of hearing no. But do you understand that when you start sharing and you hear no, that builds burden because you walk away going, wow, I just offered you eternal life and you said no, and that breaks my heart. Get your focus, get my focus off ourselves, onto others, act with increasing passion. And when you do, you will rejoice. Look at that. Rejoice as your passion grows. You'll rejoice as your prayers are answered. You'll rejoice as people are saved. And may I be so bold as to say that you will rejoice even when they reject because you know you're being obedient and loving. Isn't that good? You're just going to start enjoying Instead of saying, oh, I got to do this. Oh, I feel guilty today. You know, after today, I feel guilty. So this week, I'm going to do my best and get that guilt off my back. Instead of motivated like that, you're going to be motivated by love and joy. I'm doing what I was meant to be, what I was meant to do. I want us to look at a video. I think we need inspiration. So let's take a look at this. Jerry, if you get the... to introduce you to the gospel right now you are a rebel whether you want to acknowledge it or not i'll tell you straight up you are a rebel against the living god this is your natural disposition why because you were born in sin we are in a prison cell and it takes the awakening and the grace of god you call it the provenient grace of god to awaken us to the fact that we are lost and we can't get out we're headed towards destruction fast the enemy, because of our rebellion against God, has legal rights to harm and harass our life. There you are behind the prison cell. Help! I need out! You can't get out. Those prison bars are stronger than any adamant. There is no way you can cut them because they're stronger than diamond. It is impenetrable. You cannot escape. You're doomed. Because when the enemy comes in in the very end, and he's going to finish you off. Because he has legal right to do it. And he's going to relish every minute of it. In strolls your intercessor. Your mighty man. And he stands between you and that accuser. And he takes the hit that was rightfully yours. He takes the blow that was intended for you. That is an extraordinary reality that he was turned to a pulp and he actually died. God died for you. Over your prison cell, it is always said, condemned, separated eternally from God, guilty. And then suddenly it switches. When you realize what Jesus Christ has done, it says justified. It says forgiven, redeemed. Here's the problem. Most of us have stopped with the good news right there. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed and he was killed. I want you to know that is unbelievable news. But we are still in a prison cell. And so we're praising God from within a prison cell going, Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for changing the sign on the outside of the prison. And 
and God's word says, could you check the door to the prison cell? Because my blood was shed for more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness was the avenue through which he could make the escape for us. He isn't just interested in dealing with the consequences or the penalty of sin. He's also dealt with the problem of sin. That's the door. It's unlocked. The door to the prison cell is unlocked. Walk out. Smell the open air of freedom and liberty in the life of Jesus Christ. When you get outside the prison cell, there's like this chariot that's waiting. Emissaries from the king, and they say the king beckons you into his presence. You know how bizarre this is when you realize that you were a rebel? That you were undeserving completely? The living God has literally given up his life for you? And now he has set you free? And now the very king is beckoning you into his presence? It's like, are you sure you have the right guy here? I'm a rebel. I, I stood against my God. I spat in his face. How, how could he want me? The king beckons you. You get in the chariot. And as you're pulling into the kingdom, you're looking for where they might drop you off. You're looking for that poor district. You're saying, where, where are you taking me? Well, into the very near presence of the king. He wants you to live right where he lives. Not just the penalty. Not just the problem. But an invitation into his very near presence. But as you're coming in, the emissaries say, he wants to adopt you as his child. Me? Child? We are brought in and invited near to share his heart. You come into his presence totally broken before the reality of what he has done for you. I don't deserve this. Why have you done this for me? I love you. I have a commission for you. For me? You want to have me work for you? I want you to work for me. I want you to represent me. Absolutely. Anything I can do for you, just tell me. I need you to go back to that prison cell that I took you out of. Because there's a whole bunch more that need to know about me and my love and my truth. Will you go for me? In a heartbeat, I would, I would gladly serve you any way you want, any way you ask. I need to forewarn you. I'm going to send you out. And you'll be as a sheep among wolves. They'll kill you. They'll destroy you. They'll hate you. They'll persecute you. They will do whatever they can to harm you. I'm in. I'll do it, God. I don't care. You shed your blood for me. I would gladly shed my blood for you. Take my body. Take my blood. Spend it any way you want. I belong to you in, in covenant. Take me, Lord Jesus. Send me. The commission. Not just the penalty. Not just the problem. Not just the invitation to his very near presence. Not just the adoption as a son and a daughter of the king of kings. But we are commissioned to represent him. And I want you to realize that is a privilege beyond all other privileges. To bear the very name, the very image, the very reputation of God Almighty. And he says, I ask you to go. Go and make disciples of all men. Go and be unashamed of my gospel and preach it. Go, rescue the lost in the power of my name. For is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. I'll go. And as you're beginning to head out with his blessing, he says, Hold it. Wait. There's one more thing. Not just the penalty. Not just the problem. Not just the invitation to his very near presence. Not just the adoption as a son or a daughter of the king. And not just the commission. This is the capstone. If you think that is all good, you could wrap that all up into one ball and it still falls short of the final one. Because this final one is so condescending on the part of our king. It is so bewildering. It is so extraordinary. so amazing. And this is the truth that turns the world upside down. Before you go, what I'm sending you out to do is impossible. I know. And if you do it in your own strength, you'll fail. I don't care. I'm willing to do whatever you ask of me. And if you want me to go in there and just die, I'm willing. I'm sending you out to be a victor. My children will not lose. Would you give me your body? And I will come in and make it my home. 
and I will take those hands of yours and make them my hands. I will take those feet of yours and make them my feet. I will take that mouth of yours and it will speak my words. I will take those eyes of yours and they can now see what I need you to be seen in this world. And I will take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh so that it will beat with my burdens and you will care for the very things that I care about. And your prayers will become my prayers. And your life and your attitude and your behavior every minute of every day will be the very behavior of God. Will you allow me to overtake your life? Because then we go into this world as little lambs with the faces of lions. Because the living God Almighty, the consuming, almighty, sovereign God dwells within His children. And as we stand and the wolf pack surrounds us, we stand in the authority in the name of Jesus and we will not back down. Because we do not head off to war to lose. We head off to war to win. Our God mocks all the powers of earth and hell through fluffy little lambs. Because His lambs beat the wolf pack. That's the gospel. The gospel trounces upon all the powers of earth and hell and demonstrates to the universe the manifold wisdom of God that He is in control. And even though we look weak, and even though physically and naturally we are weak, spiritually, greater is He that is in us than He that is in this world. That is good news. And it is a lot better than what's being dealt out today in the church. We need to rise up, proclaim the gospel, and say, I of Jesus Christ to overtake you suddenly it all works because it's him imitating himself and he's very good at being God from whatever it is that is hindering you from praying with passion, pursuing and begin to renew your mind with truth to request from God, God, give me your heart. Fill me with your passion. And then begin to respond. So we have this today. I, I kind of just took the lesson and I put it on a half sheet because I want it in your Bible. I want you to begin to pray over this. I want you to begin. I want my desire is that this piece of paper will be soaked with your tears. As God breaks your heart. You know, the rest of the story on Nikki is twice she has lived over here at Timberline. 
her and Sean live just a couple blocks down the street, yet she had never heard the gospel. There's a whole bunch of people like that. There's a whole bunch of people. people that you interact with every day. Where's our passion? Where's our prayers? Where's our pursuit? It's really simple. Paul just said a very simple thing. Brothers, my heart's desire for them and prayer for them is that they would be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we have shrunk your gospel and we have kept it selfishly for ourselves. We are prayerless. When we do pray, we often pray for our own selfish desire. I pray that right now we would repent. We would turn from that and turn towards the full understanding of the gospel that we saw so dramatically portrayed. And we would let the greatness of your sovereignty the sufficiency of your cross, the reality of hell, the certainty of your love, the generosity of your grace, all of that, Lord. We would turn to it, embrace it, surrender to it, and then go forth and share it. Lord, let this be the beginning of something very special. We, we, we celebrate. We rejoice. We've seen this few months we've robert block accepting jesus nikki others some in this room years ago accepted jesus we rejoiced but we long for more so we pray in jesus name all god's people said amen